Welcome to Worldview, a foreign affairs podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Chris Dooley. Well, we said on last week's podcast that there was a big week coming up in the Brexit story, but we didn't really anticipate the scale of the political drama that was about to unfold in Westminster. In detailed discussions today, the Cabinet has agreed our collective position on the future of our negotiations with the EU. It all began on Friday night, when an ebullient Prime Minister, Theresa May, emerged from an all-day Cabinet meeting at Chequers to announce she had secured the approval of her government for a so-called soft Brexit strategy. It proved too soft indeed for her senior Brexit minister, David Davis. Our main story this morning, Brexit Secretary David Davis has resigned from government just days after Theresa Davis was followed out the door on Monday by Foreign Secretary Boris Johnson, who told the Prime Minister that while he had congratulated her on Friday night over the fact that the government now had a Brexit song to sing, he had discovered over the weekend that as he tried to practice the song, the words stuck in his throat. The resignations of Davis and Johnson, combined with those of three junior ministers, plunged Theresa May into her biggest crisis since her disastrous failure to secure an overall majority in the 2016 general election. So we have much to discuss today. There's the political drama in London. And we also want to look back at the decision made by the Cabinet at its meeting in Chequers on Friday. What is Britain now seeking from the Brexit negotiations and what kind of response can we expect from Brussels? On the line to help us plot our way through all of this are our resident experts, London editor Dennis Staunton, and in Brussels, our Europe editor, Patrick Smith. Dennis, I want to ask you first about Monday's events at Westminster. Was this ultimately a good day for Theresa May? Well, it was a good day in one sense, in that she survived it. And by the end of the day, uh, a day which began without uh, really any certainty as to how uh, she was going to, to end up, she actually had emerged from a meeting of with conservative backbenchers uh, with uh, applause. And also it was quite clear that uh, the Brexiteers on the backbenchers, although they don't like what she's doing, they're not going to move against her immediately. The other good point from her point of view is that uh, David Davis and uh, Boris Johnson are gone from the cabinet and that means two troublemakers are gone and stay, instead she's got people who are loyal to her in in place, particularly Jeremy Hunt, who uh, she promoted from health secretary to become foreign secretary. And as it turns out now, all of the four great offices of state, uh, the foreign secretary, home secretary, prime minister and chancellor of the exchequer are held by people who campaign to remain in the European Union. So in that sense, it's a good day for her. Uh, it was a bad day, though, insofar as it destabilised her. It also uh, it, it exposed uh, a, a rift within the Conservative Party and a, div- a division among the Brexiteers. So that you now have a rump of MPs, probably a few dozen of them, uh, around people like Jacob Rees-Mogg, who say that they're not going to vote for a deal that's based on what she is proposing of a kind of a soft Brexit. And so it's very hard to see whatever deal she comes back with now. It's hard to see how she gets a majority in the House of Commons for it. The other problem I think that she has is that uh, when Boris Johnson left and uh, David Davis left, the other rem- uh, the other uh, Brexiteers in the cabinet, people like Michael Gove and Andrea Leadsom, they made it clear that they're staying, but they don't want to see any further compromises. And yet it's quite clear that if this uh, proposal is going to go anywhere, then it probably will involve further compromises in the negotiations with Brussels. And so it may be that her room for manoeuvre because of these resignations is more limited than it might have been. Now, you mentioned that two troublemakers are gone, but I think it was Lyndon Johnson who said it. it's better to have your enemies inside the tent pissing out than outside the tent pissing in. And I think John Major actually referenced that that line when he was prime minister and he re- he he made that reference in specific um 
in the context of the Eurosceptic bastards in his cabinet, as he called them. Now, Johnson and Davis are outside the tent, but are, are they going to start um, pissing in? That's an unusually foul-mouthed question for, on your part, I have to say. Chris, I was but, quoting uh, Lyndon Johnson I, and John Major, Dennis. I know that, but in, the, but it was, but in answer to it, the, the truth is that Boris Johnson was pissing in the tent while he was inside it. And uh, so he'll certainly be doing it from the outside. But I think it probably is, from the point of view of uh, cabinet cohesion or cohesiveness, it probably is better uh, to have them outside. I think one of the calculations that uh, Boris Johnson must have made last night after he resigned was to work out uh, could he challenge Theresa May for the leadership? And I think if he's done his sums, he'll find that he probably doesn't go, uh, he's not going to have the votes to be able to do that. Because you need just 48 MPs to trigger a vote of confidence in Theresa May. But you need 159 to win it. And there's no sign that there are 159 members of the parliamentary party uh, right now who would be ready to throw Theresa May overboard. So for now, at least... I think that uh, Boris Johnson can certainly cause trouble outside, uh, as can David Davis. But uh, until such time as uh, as it comes to some kind of a vote or uh, other cabinet members uh, start to leave, nothing much has happened. But it also goes back to what I was saying. The fact is that because of this division within the Conservative Party now, it is not clear how Theresa May gets a parliamentary majority for any form of Brexit she's offering. I'll bring Paddy Smith in here. Um, Paddy, our Europe editor in Brussels. Paddy, you might re- restore some decorum to the conversation. Um, how are Monday's events, the spate of resignations, how are they viewed in Brussels? Well, I think the, the thing in Brussels is that we've been saying here, or at least the EU has been saying here, and uh, commentators have been saying here, that that uh, the British have spent too long uh, dithering over making their position clear and that it was up to uh, Mrs. May to sit down and, and confront uh, the Brexiteers uh, in order to get a document which she could put in front of the negotiators. Um, she's done that, so there is some relief that that, that that has been done. And that there is fallout, people sort of acknowledge that that's the price uh, that she's paying for, for making that important step forward. But they don't actually see it as terminal. The, 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 the analysis here uh, would be that uh, the Brexiteers may have, have uh, shot their bolt, uh, that there aren't enough in the parliamentary party to overthrow her. Um, so people are, are, are quietly pleased that she's made this move forward. Having said that, uh, they, they also acknowledge immediately that the document that um, she has produced, uh, although as some put it, she will get her onto the dance floor uh, of negotiations, uh, they don't uh, give it any prospect of surviving in its present form. You made the point, Paddy, in a piece you wrote in the Irish Times today that much had been made of their warm working relationship that existed or was purported to exist between David Davis and Michel Barnier, the EU chief negotiator, but that was probably overstated, was it? It was certainly overstated. Uh, In fact, in the course of this year, uh, Mr Davis had spent uh, about four hours in face-to-face negotiations uh, with uh, Mr Barnier. Uh, he has preferred to leave the, the, the well, I, sh- I shouldn't say preferred, he has left the negotiating uh, to Ollie Robbins, who's uh, Theresa May's man in, in uh, advisor and uh, a, a senior official who has conducted all the, all the negotiations. Uh, Davis has really been sidelined uh, by May in the course of the last uh, months. And, and so he hasn't played a role. And so a lot of people here are saying, quite frankly, they, they won't miss him.
Dennis, will we go back to um, let's go back to Friday night and I suppose what triggered these resignations in the first place, and that was the position arrived at by the cabinet at its meeting in Chequers, which will now form the basis of Britain's negotiations on Brexit with the EU. What were the chief characteristics of the proposals that um, that, that they announced on Friday night? The main proposal was that. Uh, Britain and the EU would, in the words of the document, follow a common rule book for uh, goods, including agricultural products. And when they say a common rule book, what they actually mean is the EU rule book. So in other words, uh, uh, the UK would remain uh, fully aligned with the uh, European single market for goods, including agricultural products. Uh, They said that on services, they'd be able to go their own way. And uh, then they had a, a proposal for uh, a kind of customs arrangement which would, uh, as they say, treat the UK and the EU as a combined customs area and would see the UK being allowed to set its own different tariffs, but uh, the UK would collect tariffs on behalf of the EU, EU on goods that were going through the UK to Europe. Then the other element was they said that uh, you know, uh, although uh, the UK would commit up front to ongoing harmonization of regulations on goods that uh, Parliament would at any stage be able to say that uh, they weren't going to accept some new regulation, but knowing that there would be consequences for market access, for security and for the arrangements, whatever arrangements they make with regard to Northern Ireland and the border. And so uh, essentially they were saying you can do this, you know, you can trigger some kind of uh, crisis, but but the consequences of, say, voting against some new regulation on vacuum cleaners or cars or whatever is that you bring the whole house down in terms of the regulatory arrangement. So this was a big step as far as a lot of Brexiteers were concerned because they said that actually you're ceding sovereignty, you're uh, you're following rules that you won't have any uh, role uh, in shaping uh, once we've left the European Union. And that, in fact, it's going to make it very difficult to negotiate trade deals around the world because uh, the fact is that if you want to do a trade deal with the United States, they want you to be uh, prepared to accept their standards for goods and for agricultural products particularly, and that uh, that wouldn't be possible if you were following the EU's rulebook. So anyway, they uh, th- you know they had their discussion at Chequers. They met at 10 o'clock in the morning. And during the course of the day, it became clear that the Brexiteers were heavily outnumbered by 20 to 7. And so they sort of said, well, right, we accept this. And uh, at the end, uh, Boris Johnson, although he had described the uh, uh, the offering as a turd, he said, uh, and he said that, you know, trying to... You're talk, lowering the tone uh, now, Dennis, but carry on. I know. And he said that trying to, to, to sell this was going to be like polishing a turd. But nonetheless... He said finally at the end, he said, you know, uh, over dinner, you've given us a song to sing. We now need to go out together and sell this thing. And he proposed a toast to the prime minister. And this is why she said, uh, when in answer to his resignation letter, she said, uh, you know, I was uh, more than a little surprised to receive this. And to say I'm surprised was, uh, you know, a, a serious, serious insult. And so... Um, so anyway, so they, they went off. Uh, it appeared as if uh, that was the deal. The deal was done. And over the weekend, you had a number of Brexiteer ministers like Michael Gove and Chris Grayling and Andrea Leadsom going out and uh, talking up this deal. And then on Sunday night, uh, David Davis resigned saying he couldn't uh, he couldn't do it, that he'd be the person who'd have to go into Parliament and defend uh, the proposal. I would be front and centre in delivering this policy, explain 
explaining it to the House, persuading the House it was right, and then going out and delivering it uh, with the European Union. And frankly, just as it was known uh, that there were uh, what the policy was, it was also known that I had concerns about it. It would not have been a plausible thing to do, and I wouldn't have done a good job at it. He said he uh, wished her well, and he said that he hoped that he was wrong and the Prime Minister was right, and he urged uh, other MPs not to move against her. And he also said that he wasn't interested in anybody else resigning. Then during the course of the day on Monday, Boris Johnson, who had let it be known through his friends uh, to the media over the weekend that he had no intention of resigning. He said that if I resign, that the only people who would benefit would be Angela Merkel and Michel Barnier. And so I'm going to stay and make sure there are no further concessions. But then once Davis resigned, uh, he uh, made his mind up and resigned at three o'clock in the afternoon. Presumably Johnson didn't want to cede the ground to Davis where he would be the de facto leader of the, the Brexiteer faction within the Tory party. So was it Davis's resignation that forced Johnson's hand? That appears to be the case because he certainly he was giving no indication uh, over the weekend of planning to resign. He was, uh, uh, you know, his suggestion was he was going to stay and fight for, uh, you know, for a real Brexit, a clean Brexit, as he would say. But instead he uh, decided he was going. There was something... Uh, you know, impromptu about it. And he actually, and even in this letter, which he, he wrote on Monday evening, uh, he had to acknowledge that uh, he had praised this thing as being a song uh, that they could all sing. And then he found that when he was practicing the words over the weekend, that they stuck in his throat. So he had to cover himself in that way. But then using, you know, in his usual eloquent way, he said that uh, the Brexit dream had died and that uh, it was being uh, smothered in uh, a lack of uh, self-confidence, really, and it was you know, in self-doubt. And this, uh, this message that he has, that Boris Johnson is delivering about the fact that Brexit has been ruined by uh, people who did never really believed in it, uh, is one that resonates with an awful lot of conservative voters. And it resonates with a lot of people who voted for Brexit, people outside politics, who really don't see why it has to be so complicated. And so I think that uh, although nobody's saying anything good about Boris Johnson today, and he's got a lot of enemies in the parliamentary party, the conservative parliamentary party, he still is a dangerous enemy for Theresa May outside because he does have an appeal to the conservative grassroots. And if he chooses to strike at a moment when he can win, then he could be a formidable uh, rival for her. And um, Paddy, looking then at the details of those proposals, as, as Dennis just outlined, what is in there that you think that, that Brussels might like? I mean, where, maybe look at the common ground first. I mean, where is the potential here for common ground between the British position and the EU position? I think uh, that what we've seen in, in the package uh, is a re um, packaging of previous proposals in a way that makes them more acceptable to uh, Brexiteers. Um, the reality is the Commission has dismissed uh, virtually all of these proposals previously in one form or another, uh, but they are anxious to start discussions, so they will sit down and talk about it. There is a possibility. She, she has made it clear that, that the UK could be part of a customs union, not the customs union, and that is uh, something that, that certainly could be negotiated. But her distinction between uh, goods and services is one that the Commission simply can't accept, and her, uh, her lines about uh, migration and about uh, how uh, Britain would retain control of migration um, 
really would need to be very severely clarified because they're, they're completely unacceptable. Maybe unacceptable since the very beginning. Many people have talked about the four freedoms being inextricably linked. Um, the commitment she has made to signing up to a backstop is one that she has made repeatedly since uh, December. And so we really don't see any change there, but it'll be welcomed nonetheless by, by uh, the Irish government. What we have to see, though, is the, the courage which she has shown in standing up to the Brexiteers, whether she's prepared to use the same courage to stand up to the DUP and to say, look, even on a temporary basis, you're going to have to uh, accept our commitment in, in a backstop to um, uh, measures that are uh, limited measures on the Irish Sea of, of, of controls. Uh, and and Barney has been helping her in this regard by trying to talk down the nature of such uh, controls. He says they won't be a border. He's uh, he's t trying to what he calls de-dramatize them, and pointing out that some of the controls are already existent. Uh, and and so there is there is possibility of movement there. But she has to be brave again, and she has to talk. Tell, tell the unionists this is the way it's going to be. Otherwise, it's not possible to get a backstop. Um, that distinction, Dennis, that Paddy referred to there between the a common rule book for industrial goods and agricultural products and services, with the distinction being made by Britain, what's the logic behind that? Is it simply that services are just uh, too, of too much value to Britain, really? They want to be able to sort of, you know, negotiate their own their own deals on this. 80% of the of the British economy is services. Uh, as Paddy says, there's a problem in distinguishing between goods and services because a, a lot of the value of some goods is actually to do with services. So, for example, in uh, modern cars, an awful lot of the value of them is data. Uh, and sometimes they're tied in with financial services like uh, car loans or insurance or whatever. And so it's hard to unpick them. And in the same way, if I uh, if you buy an IT system, then you're also usually buying the maintenance of that IT system and the people who go in when it breaks down inevitably a week later. And so you've got, uh, you know, so you're paying for, uh, you know, so it's, it's hard to untangle these. But the bigger issue for the UK is financial services and uh, the City of London. And the Bank of England, for example, has been very clear that it would be a mistake for the UK to allow its financial services sector to be governed from outside by a body over which it would have no control. And so it's just too important a part of the economy. And so uh, so I think that, you know, that's one of the reasons why they don't want to go for it in that in that sense. I think listening to Paddy, it's interesting. Uh, I, I would have thought last Friday, after she appeared to have got the approval of the cabinet for this deal, that Theresa May was in a strong position to make the kind of moves and bold moves that Paddy is talking about, for example, with the DUP. Because uh, one of the issues with the backstop is that without the backstop, uh, the UK can't get a withdrawal agreement. And British business needs the confidence that there will be a transition phase. So in other words, they're not going to fall off the cliff in March next year. And the problem is that the later you get, the longer it goes on that you're not certain that this thing was going to happen, the less valuable uh, the transition is because businesses, if you start to get to October or November and you still don't know, you're going to have to start making plans in any case. So that they really need some kind of certainty about that quite soon. I think, though, that the resignations on uh, Sunday and Monday have changed everything because they have made clear to Theresa May that any further uh, concessions will come at a 
potentially huge political price. So you could find, for example, that the remaining Brexiteers in her cabinet will troop out uh, if the, she starts to make concessions. I think she will be more timid about trying to take on the DUP than she would have been before. And I think then just the fact that there is this uh, large group of hardline Brexiteers on the Conservative backbenches. Uh, 80 of them showed up to a meeting on Monday night. Now, all 80 of them may not vote against her deal, but quite a lot of them will. And so if those people are not prepared to support any deal that she comes back with, then it's hard to see how it uh, how it goes through. So I think that one of the uh, really dramatic things that has happened here in the last 48 hours is that two options which seemed very unlikely last week, which was a no-deal Brexit or no Brexit at all, have now become much, much more probable. And in fact, they're probably almost as likely as uh, as a Brexit on the basis of some kind of compromise. Well, I mean, on that point, you, you made a point in um, PC Road today. It, it could be that there's no majority in the House of Commons for any particular type of Brexit you can come up with. Isn't that right? Yeah, I think there isn't, actually. I mean, there, there is no majority that you can unlock. I mean, there may conceivably be a majority uh, for something like a very soft Brexit, like the Norwegian option, so remaining in the European economic area. But it's hard to actually unlock that, because if you think about, uh, let's imagine that Theresa May comes back with a deal, and it's a soft Brexit deal. You're going to have those Brexiteers on her backbenches voting against it. And then the question is, what does the Labour Party do? And Jeremy Corbyn is likely to vote against it on the basis that he wants to bring down the Conservative government. He wants to have a general election and he wants to become prime minister. And then there's a, a big rump of, uh, of hard remainers of kind of, uh, you know, of very enthusiastic pro-Europeans within the Labour Party. But they actually want to remain in the European Union. So a soft Brexit is not a good idea from their point of view either. The Liberal Democrats want to remain in the European Union, as do the Scottish Nationalists. So it's, uh, so, so most likely you're going to have a majority voting against that kind of deal. And then what happens? Does uh, Theresa May say, OK, we're leaving without a deal? And yet it's clear that there's undoubtedly a majority in the House of Commons uh, against leaving without a deal. So does the House of Commons find some way to make uh, its feelings felt? So one way is that uh, simply you have a general election, that the government falls because it can't get through the most important piece of legislation for generations through Parliament. And so uh, it triggers a general election. Does that then in turn mean that you have to delay the process of negotiation by asking for an extension of the Article 50 period? Or is it that the Parliament simply says, we will not accept leaving without a deal and we want you to go back to ask for an extension of the negotiating period and to try to find a deal that can command a majority in the House of Commons? And then if you do delay Brexit, uh, then there is a chance of a general election. Uh, if you get a general election, who knows what's going to happen. But one possibility would be that Theresa May can't form a government, uh, that Jeremy Corbyn can't form a majority Labour government and can only form a government with the support of the pro-European parties. And that that would uh, once again influence whatever he does. And he again may not be able to find a majority for any kind of Brexit at all. So what that means, does it mean Brexit doesn't happen? Does it uh, mean that, the, that actually there is a no deal Brexit because they can't get it together to extend Article 50? All of those things, I think now, are just as possible as leaving on the basis of a negotiated deal. 
Paddy, I'll bring you in on that. I mean, I think there was some optimism around at the weekend after that at least the British government had now, or that Theresa May had a mandate to go to Brussels to negotiate on a particular strategy. But just listening to Dennis's um, summary of the position there, I mean, what's the view from Brussels on this? Is there kind of despair about whether Britain will ever be able to come to the table with a position that it can stick to and negotiate on? I, I think that people think that they can start negotiations next week and they are pleased that Mrs May has got this basic position through uh, her, her, her cabinet uh, and that, that, that we have a, basically a summer lined up of, of negotiations. I don't think the crunch will come until later when uh, you know, some of the, the chickens that Dennis has been talking about come home to roost. Uh, so that in the immediate term, in the, uh, in the short term, I think there's a sense uh, of, yes, she's got us through this. OK, and so, Dennis, just on the next steps, then, um, I, I think the next um, the next step really is that the, this position, as agreed on Friday, will now be set out formally in, in detail in a white paper. There was some talk of that being delayed, but it's, I think it is still due to come on Thursday, am I correct? Yes, that's going to be published on Thursday, and that's... Uh, that's much more detailed. It's over 100 pages. And uh, the cabinet made their decision on the basis of the documents that make up this uh, white paper. So they've, they've seen all these details. So that's the next moment. And the backbench Brexiteers want Theresa May to change the white paper or to change the proposal. And she said quite clearly she's not going to because it now has cabinet approval. And that is the UK position. Uh, as Paddy says, they want to start negotiations next week. I think if the response from uh, Brussels is, as Paddy says, it will be, which is that they say, okay, this is a basis on which we can start to negotiate. Let's start going through the details. Then things will calm down. There's only two weeks to go before Parliament uh, breaks up for the summer. And so it's likely that she'll at least survive until then. It's very unlikely that there's going to be any uh, any attempt to remove her. One of the details, by the way, about the Conservative rules for getting rid of her is that if you challenge her now, uh, you can't go again if she succeeds, if she survives. You can't go again for another 12 months. And that's why the Brexiteers don't want to move until they feel pretty confident that they could actually dislodge her. So she's probably safe. As Paddy says, you might have a fairly quiet summer of negotiations until it all comes roaring back in September, which is when uh, the uh, EU is likely to, to make clear what it needs in terms of further concessions to move this thing on. And you're also getting into party conference season. And that's when I think the trouble is likely to return here in London. OK, well, I know you both love making predictions, so I'm going to finish by asking you both. I mean, Looking ahead to next March, how you see things playing out, do you, do, you, do you think, Dennis, first, do you think Britain will, the UK will leave the European Union as scheduled on the 29th of March next year at 11pm, as Jacob Rees-Mogg re reminded everybody last night, counting the hours? I still think that's the most likely thing to happen, but I, uh, I would have felt really very, very confident in that prediction last week, and I feel less confident in making it now. And Paddy? I'm the other way around. I think I'm slightly more confident uh, that that May has survived uh, this battle with the with the big beasts, and uh, that we are are moving into a period where uh, the bones of a deal, I think, can be can be done over the course of of the of the summer. I'm much more confident about making a prediction about tonight's match. I think Belgium will definitely beat France. Well, I, I'm I'm going to have to go back to Dennis. And what about tomorrow night, Dennis? Will England beat Croatia? 
Oh, well, I think uh, living here, at least, if you watched all of the coverage, there's absolutely no question. Football is not just coming home. It's already arrived home, practically. And it's really only a question of uh, you know, what the welcome mat is going to be formed by. I think uh, it's uh, certainly there's nobody here who doesn't seem to believe that, uh, A, that, uh, that England will win tomorrow night, but also that, uh, as they say, they'll go all the way. But I think your expertise might be a bit greater on this one than, than mine is. Oh, I'm not sure about that, given all the football references I've seen in your copy of late but listen we'll let um, we've, um, we're veering into the sports podcast territory now so we'll, we'll leave you there um, Dennis in London and, and, and Paddy in Brussels thanks a lot for that that's all for this week for more on these and other stories go to irishtimes.com thanks for listening goodbye for now